Patchies. Thank you so much for tuning in to the 29th episode of Season 2 of the Keeping It Arcadia podcast, brought to you by the students in Arcadia High School's Digital Communications Internship, or DCI for short. My name is Joyce Pang, and I'm your host for today. This week, we have a lengthy but very quality episode. First, let's start off with Jeffrey Lee's interview with Mr. Matthew Ormseth, an Arcadia High School and Cornell University graduate who now works at LA Times, on his experiences in journalism and advice for aspiring journalists. Next, Jeffrey talks to Kevin Tan, our Harvard Brown Valedictorian and the captain of Arcadia High School's Science Olympiad, on joining the academic team and how the team did at their recent regionals competition. Last but not least, we have an interview with Chief Chen Xuan, a battalion chief at the Arcadia Fire Department, on the upcoming hands-only CPR training session for the freshmen of Arcadia High School. First, Jeffrey's interview with LA Times' Matthew Ormseth. Hello, everyone. This is Jeffrey, and I'm here with Mr. Matthew Ormseth from the LA Times. Uh, Matt, I just wanted to start off by showing you uh, this picture. So the man who introduced me to uh, interview you uh, is Mr. Kovacic, who is the former mayor of Arcadia. And he showed me this book. It's called More Visions of Arcadia. And is this familiar to you or any chance? Is um, Cora Ormseth? Yeah, More that's, that's, my, uh, that's my older sister. That's your older sister? Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So, um... <laughs> I read her speech. It's an uh, awesome valedictorian speech about great-grandfather, how he was held at the Santa Anita racetrack, and how, you know, through hard work and passion, we can change anything. Yeah. So I think that's a kind of perfect segue into uh, our interview about journalism and your experiences in it, because um, you are a reporter for the LA Times, and before that, you were in Arcadia High School. You graduated from Arcadia High School. So has your time in Arcadia High School influenced your decision in any way in becoming a reporter? Uh, y yes and no. I, I I didn't know I wanted to be a reporter until kind of the end of, of college, actually. Um, I'd been on the student newspaper at Arcadia. Apache Powwow? Apache Powwow. I did it one year. I didn't really like it. Mm. Um, so I went to I went to, into college thinking I was going to major in English and then be a lawyer or something. Um, so, I mean, definitely my time at Arcadia, it really really moved me to to want to want to study writing and and you know I, I loved reading books and and you know uh, I loved all my literature classes but I really wasn't that interested in journalism until I got to until I got to college so what changed um, I think part of it was I just didn't want to go to school for another three years <laughs> and go to law school mm. um, I think another part was that um, I'd kind of stumbled into journalism the summer after my sophomore year, I did an internship, and uh, I, I just got lucky with a with a really great experience. And um, so after that, every summer I, I did a I did an internship at different newspapers, and then just kind of the the breadth of the experiences and and the people that I was able to 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 meet um, through those internships really convinced me to to try to do this after I graduated. Okay, that's great. So after yeah. Acadia High School, you went to Cornell University yep. and you covered city news and state politics at the Hartford Courant, which is the largest daily newspaper in Connecticut. Yep. So what do you, would you say is the most important lesson that you learned while working there? At the Hartford Courant? Yes. Um, a, a lot, I mean, that, that was a, a tremendously like formative experience. I was there for about a year and a half. It was my first real job. Um, just to give you a little backstory, I started there as an intern. Um, I think I graduated on like June 1st of like 2017 and then I started at the Hartford Current like June 5th and you know I'd never been to Hartford before, I'd never, never really been to spend any significant time in Connecticut and I was an intern, I was going to be there for 10 weeks but I kind of 
made up my mind that I was going to try to stick around as long as I could after afterwards. So um, by the end of the 10 weeks, they kind of knew who I was. They had a good idea of what I could do. And then they would just kind of say, like, hey, do you want to stay for another week or another two weeks? And that went on for, for a while. And I mean, just that experience, you know, not knowing if you're going to be there for another week, it really just taught me to try to, you know, crank out as much as you can and work as hard as you can that week because, again, you're trying to convince them to keep you there for another week. Right. And um, so, so that was that was just a really good way to um, force yourself to, to work really quickly and work accurately um, because you know you don't have the luxury of spending a month or so on a story. You know you got to get it done that day. Or, um, and also just working with some really really talented journalists there. The thing about the Hartford Current is like it's a smaller paper than the Times definitely, but there's a lot of people who've been there for like. 30 or 40 years um, who just who just have this 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 tremendous grasp of journalism and people that they're writing for and writing about um, got it awesome yeah. so do you have any advice for students aspiring to become reporters of journalism in the future uh, yeah I mean I think um, I think you should definitely try to start working at a small local newspaper I know a lot of people my age they have gone to big uh, big kind of web-based publications like BuzzFeed or or, um, or you know I don't know the, the TV programs like NBC um, CBS and stuff and, and I, I mean personally I, I think you learn a lot more by working in a small newspaper that writes for a very specific audience um, you know, you get to spend a little bit more time out in the field that way, like getting to know people. Um, getting to know the people who are reading your work is really important because um, it's, you take your job much more seriously when, um, you know, the people who you're writing about and writing for are, you know, your neighbors and people that you see at the store and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the biggest, the biggest piece of advice is go try to work for a small newspaper okay. first. Okay, yeah. right. that's great. Okay, so on to uh, more present day. So, mm -hmm. uh, as you, you know, the President of the United States uh, decries fake news. So, how can yeah. we as regular American people identify fake news, and how do you, as a journalist, uh, make sure what you say and write is reliable? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, the first one is, um, I think, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter are going to play a big part in helping us do that and helping weed out fake news. I think they need to do a better job of that. Um, on the flip side, I think, I think if um, readers understood the amount of, of fact-checking and uh, just the rigor of, of most, most legacy publications like the LA Times, the New York Times, or the Washington Post, or the Journal, um, if they understood the kind of just the rigor of uh, the reporting and the editing process, I think people would trust trust the news a lot more. I mean, just the LA Times, I think before something goes online, um, three or maybe even four people will read it and edit it. It goes in print even more. Um, and, you know, we, we go through line by line, sentence by sentence and word by word, making sure everything is, is um, as, as accurate as possible. Um, so I, I think if people just understand kind of understood that, they would trust a lot more. Um, as part of our job as journalists to, to, to win people's trust, um, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not really sure what much more we could, 
we could do. Um, mm. I think we should be more transparent about the reporting process and the editing process because we have nothing to we have nothing to hide. Mm -hmm. Okay. So throughout your career, have there been any interesting stories that you've covered and was able to pull a life lesson out of it? Or what was your favorite story that you've ever covered? Uh, favorite story I've ever covered? Um, I think the most interesting story I've ever covered is one that I've been covering for about a couple months now, which is this um, college cheating thing. Um, in terms of like favorite story, I don't know. They're, they're all like just like so, so different. Um, It'd be hard to kind of just pick one of them. Um, I think one one of my favorite ones from my time in Connecticut was uh, there was these these um, really really dilapidated housing projects in Hartford that a lot of people lived in, hundreds of people. It's about 26 different apartment buildings, and they were owned by a guy who was making millions of dollars um, from the federal government to house poor people. You know, um, through HUD, yeah. uh, Housing and Urban Development right. Department, and um, uh, we were able to just kind of go through the guy's finances and and see that he was just ripping off people all over the country like this, and you know, just using these to cash cow and um, living really lavishly, and he had he had about fifty nine million dollars mm. in assets. So you're pretty much an investigative journalist. Uh, no, 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 I'm not <laughs> uh, not an investigative journalist with a capital I. Uh, I, I've always been a general assignment reporter, so like just whatever's going on, they'll just put me, put me on that story, um, kind of like a, like a floating, you know, utility infielder kind mm. of, kind of reporter. Um, but you know, if you ever stumble across a good story that, that you want to kind of uh, look into, I've never had an editor who said don't do that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, what's a day in the life of a reporter like? Uh, well, it really depends on what kind of reporter you are, right? Like, so if you're a beat reporter, which I'm not, mm -hmm. uh, beat reporter means like you just, you, you, you own one thing, right? So we have like an LAPD beat reporter. We have a, an immigration beat reporter. Um, so you specialize in covering one topic. Yeah, and, and if you're a beat reporter, I mean, nobody knows that topic better than you. Mm -hmm. So you're the one who's kind of telling the editors, hey, I'm going to be working on this. I think this is a good story. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to check this out. Um, I'm not a beat reporter. I'm, a, I'm what we call a GA or general assignment reporter. So, so jack of all trades. Exactly. Yeah. So I'll, I'll come into work and probably around like eight or nine, and I'll just check in with that with the editors and see if anything big's going on. And um, if there is, they'll usually have me help out uh, on that. And then if there isn't, I mean, I've got kind of I've been I've been following this college cheating thing, and there's some stories that me and a colleague you're working on and mm -hmm. so I'll work on those. Got it. So what does a reporter mean in the modern age and how might that reporter have been different in years past? Yeah I mean I think um, I think in, in a lot of ways reporting is is this I mean good reporting is the same it's like it's um, you know trying to trying to go past the uh, the uh, official statement that you're given right mm -hmm. so like you get a press release or you get a quote from the mayor or something, and that you're trying to, you're not just taking that face value, you're, you're seeing if anybody else has contradicting views or if anything doesn't quite add up. And I think in that sense, I mean, that's, that's classic journalism that's never gonna change. Um, I think we have to get better, or we have gotten better at using um, social media, not just to publicize our stories, but as a kind of a source of reporting 
you can figure out who people were associating with. You, we have way more access to people's communications with other people. I mean, we can get Facebook messages that somebody sent or text messages. So in that sense, it's really helped us. Mm, okay, that's really really interesting. So. Uh-huh. There are some people who say that American media ignores a uh, majority of major world news, such as South Sudan civil war, or the, even the election of right-wing Brazilian politician Jair Bolsonaro. Yeah. So do you think our so-called Americentric news cycles is a problem? And how do you think the media industry should work towards eradicating that bias? Um, you know, I, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I know the LA Times used to have a much larger international operation we used to have bureaus all over the place I think part of the reason why we scaled up I mean the big reason why we scaled it back is just just because of the economics of, of of the industry I mean we can't we can't support having a bureau in Johannesburg and mm. having like you know five reporters out there the way we used to um, so I think I think in a lot of respects it's economic you know it's uh, we're more likely to get subscribers in the US by writing about things that are happening in the U.S., okay. you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, in terms of what we could do better about covering stuff overseas, you know, I I, th- I think the L.A. Times is I, I can't really speak for the newspapers, but I think the L.A. Times is starting to beef up its foreign presence again. I, I think we're sending people more people out to Asia. Our new owner wants to put a big emphasis on covering the Pacific Rim and kind of being the authority on what's going on out there. So I think I think that is um, turning around a little bit. Okay. And bonus last question. So um, summer is coming, and I know that many of my uh, fellow Apaches are still looking for internships or what to do over the summer. So do you have any possible suggestions? Or, I don't know, any general advice? For uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I got some general advice, but uh, I think it's, it's a little late in the game to mm, line yeah. up an internship. Um, but then again, I mean, like, it never hurts to just go around to every single newspaper and say like, hey, um, you know, I, I know it's kind of soon, but in case anything fell through with the guys that you're already talking to, like I'd love to be an intern for you and do whatever do whatever you need me okay. to do. Um, I think the big key when you're looking for an internship is don't really look so much at like the role you're gonna be doing as an intern as opposed to like place that you're going to be interning at, right? So, like, if if you know that this place is going to have a, a supportive um, staff who's going to help you help you grow as an intern and is going to open some doors for you down the road, um, I would much rather be, like, a food and entertainment reporter there than, like, I don't know, like a news reporter at some other place that's not going to, that's not going to be as supportive or as um, helpful. Um, like at the Hartford Current, I started there as a um, as a features reporter, which was like an arts and entertainment kind of thing, and then I was able to just kind of switch over to news. So I think it's just key to get get your foot in the door at the right place. It doesn't matter how you get your foot in the door; all that matters is that you're there and that you're um, the people who you want to work with are seeing you and and talking to you. Um, and then, I mean, I would just I would just try to to. You know, if you're working for your student newspapers, just try to cover your your administration and your student government as mm. aggressively as possible. Um, you know, don't let people be condescending to you. People are still condescending to me because they think I'm young, and um, I mean, that's, that's just BS. You know? All right. Thank you so much for your advice. Yeah, Thank absolutely. you so much for your time and um, you know your thoughts.
Thank you so much. <laughs> Next, his interview with Kevin Tan on Science Olympiad. Hey everyone, I'm Jeffrey, and today we are here with Harvard-bound, <clears throat> sorry, uh, senior and Science Olympiad captain Kevin Tan. So, Kevin, my first question for you is, how many years have you been in Science Olympiad? Well, um, I actually started my Science Olympiad journey in middle school, so I actually joined the middle school division in sixth grade, but I officially became part of the high school division in tenth. Dang, so that's like, what? Seven years? Yeah, seven, seven years. years. That's awesome. Okay. So last year I interviewed uh, Science Olympiad captain of last year, Ethan Chen, when uh, you guys were going to state competition. So he told me that Science Olympiad is a competition that encompasses many events from biology to fossils and building things like rubber band powered helicopters. So um, if you guys want any more information, please check out the episode link in the description. Uh, now I'm done with the, uh, the self-promo. Uh, am I missing anything about Science Olympiad? Uh, well, Science Olympiad, it's definitely what you just said. It's a culmination of a variety of different science events. And I think that's what makes Science Olympiad so special. You know, we have some 23 different events, and they all specialize in so many different fields. You know, biology, chemistry, physics, engineering, even inquiry. Um, and, you know, there are just so many different niche topics that we cover in Science Olympiad that, you know, if you have an interest in any field in science, we have a subject just for you. Awesome. So, uh, by the way, congratulations for getting first place at regionals. Thank you. And that being said, with so many different events, what is the competition process like and how are scores calculated? So, for the competition, we have 23 events, and typically for each event, we have between two or three members participating. So if you do the quick math, um, we do have a 15-person limit on the team, so that means each person typically participates in three to four different events throughout the day. Um, the day is pretty packed um, in terms of scheduling. Uh, you wake up at the break of dawn sometime at like you know 6.30 in the morning, uh, get to school, we you know figure out all the transit, get all the forms together, and we have to get to the campus and be registered by 8, and that's when all the fun officially starts. Um, all the events are basically in our increments, and they just progress throughout the day. And, um, you know, all of our members have an opportunity to basically just, you know, go to their events, compete, and sometimes they have, like, break time in between to eat snacks, chill, uh, collaborate. And we finish off the day with an award ceremony where uh, we get counted based on placements. So, um, much like golf, uh, lower score wins, so they tally up basically our placements for all of our events and then rank us uh, based on the competition. Got it. So what event do you individually do and why did you want to do it? So I participate mainly in four events. Um, they're forensics, protein modeling, designer jeans, and sounds and music, of course. Um, so these are my main four events. and. You know, I've actually had quite a long history with each one of these. Um, for forensics, um, I've been doing Crime Busters, that's our, like, the Division B um, version of the event. And it's just really fascinating to me because there's just so many things going on. There's powder identification, there's entomology, there's glass analysis, you know, chromatography. There are just so many different components that add up together to make that event possible. And it's always fun to be that kind of, I guess, sleuth you know, on the field, uh, being able to find out new things. Uh, designer jeans, same thing over there, long history. It's part of the Heredity event, and you know, as a bio major, 
um, I do have quite a lot of experience with you know, this kind of field. Same thing with protein modeling. Um, I really got into proteonomics over the summer, um, just kind of studying how different proteins work. And this year's focus, CRISPR-Cas9, was really exciting to me because you know, that's at the cutting edge of biotechnology. And it's really exciting to see how all these you know, different modern day um, discoveries can be applied to something. Right, like I heard about it. It's like you can go in and like cut like different genes and slice them together or something like that. Yeah, for sure. And you know, it's really interesting. Um, this year we studied the not just the CRISPR protein, but the um, kind of inhibitor to the CRISPR protein, which um, is theorized to you know have just great adma advancements in biotechnology because now we can actually officially regulate that CRISPR protein. So it's definitely really exciting to see how all these different advancements are playing out. And Thank you for simplifying yeah. it to me. I, I get it <laughs> now. Sure. All right. Okay. So just out of curiosity for forensics, do you get to do any of the Sherlock, um, you know, deductions or anything? Yeah, for sure. Uh, forensics, that's literally one of my favorite parts. Um, we gather a bunch of clues from like a crime scene, um, you know, that we hypothesize around. So there's powder analysis. Um, there's usually like a different different kinds of pens, uh, fingerprints that were, are linked to these different suspects. We read up on suspect profiles, and then we, um, at the end of the day, or at the end of the event, we have to come to a conclusion as to you know who done it, I guess. So um, that's really the exciting part. That's the, I would say the most challenging, but also the most rewarding part. You know, getting to see how all these individual, um, I guess, tasks add up to create you know and support your hypotheses. Right, so that sounds like a massive task. So how do you guys uh, prepare for the events? Ooh, so for a lot of my events, they're a combination of lab and also studying. So for instance, for the Sounds of Music event, we have two parts. Uh, one of the portions is an actual building portion where we uh, build an instrument from scratch and then we perform it and we are tested based on pitch and volume. So that's kind of the more engineering portion and for there's also a separate test portion where we actually get tested on the theoretical parts of you know sounds of music, acoustics, uh, wave theory, stuff like that. Um, it's really similar with all of my other events as well. There's usually some kind of building or interactive portion which we typically uh, prepare for by um, you know just running through practices during our meetings and um, just kind of you know just running through the theory um, together. Okay, so. As a captain of Science Olympiad, what do you guys do specifically? So captains do a lot of the background work and a lot of the management work that uh, makes the team possible. So um, you know, as a captain this year, I'm in charge of you know managing registrations to make sure that all of our competitions are you know going a okay. So um, as captains, we collaborate a lot with the faculty and with our advisor to make sure that you know everyone's on the same page in terms of the competition. Um, and you know that's just a lot of the background work that goes into making that team possible. But you know, as a captain, I do have that privilege of being able to work with 15 or 14 other amazing individuals, you know, on the A team, and you know, really being able to synergize with them, making sure that they're getting what they need, um, making sure that they, you know, have the funds needed to, you know, advance their events. Um, I think that's the most important part of being a captain, being that motivating factor, and making sure that, you know, the entire team is just, you know, ready to go from day one. Okay, right. So you're a senior and going off to college next year. So what is one memory you will always cherish from your time on Science Olympia? Wow, so many memories to go through. Um, I would say that one memory that I would cherish the most 
is when I first brought back my son's music instrument. Um, I built a cello this year uh, from scratch, you know, using strings, wood, um, built the entire body basically, you know, from scratch. And it's really rewarding to kind of bring these creations and kind of, I guess, showcase them to the team members because it really puts into perspective the kind of effort and the kind of you know, creativity that's needed to um, you know, make these events possible. And it's always nice to see other people and you know, see their you know, amused faces while they're playing the instrument as well. So I think these kinds of shared experiences are, what are you know, what's gonna stick around with me the longest. That's awesome, the cello, okay. So last but not least, what is your advice for anyone interested in joining Science Olympiad or going into STEM in general? Well. Definitely, if you're trying to, you know, go into STEM or join Science Olympiad, definitely show that passion, you know. Um, there's so many different things that are left to explore out there in the world, you know. Um, there's still so much that we don't know about our own inner systems or, you know, the further, the farthest reaches of our universe. And there's just so much left to explore out there. And I just want to say that everyone should remain curious, you know. Stay on that lookout and you know, continue delving into things that challenge you. And I feel that's the best way to prepare for, you know, these fields. You know, it's constantly evolving. And I guess, you know, as, you know, STEM major, you have to evolve along with that field. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. Last but not least, Jeffrey has an interview with Chief Chen Sven on what hands-on CPR is, how to do it, and who will be learning it. Hello everyone, this is Jeffrey and I'm here with Chief uh, Chen, who is an Arcadia High School graduate and the C-Shift Battalion Chief at the Arcadia Fire Department. So uh, Chief Chen, thank you so much uh, for your time and your service as well. So I'm interviewing Chief Chen about the third annual Sidewalk CPR presentation where the Arcadia Fire Department has partnered with the high school and Arcadia Methodist Hospital to teach freshman students the hands-only CPR method on June 3rd, 4th, and 5th in their PE period as their final grade. Now that the promotion is over, let's start with the questions. So my first question for you is, what is the hands-on CPR method, and how is it different from the traditional method, you know, with the mouth-to-mouth uh, -mouth as well? Well, hands-only CPR has been a campaign that started in 2012 by the American Hearts Association. It's really trying to teach normal people that aren't CPR certified to be able to do something if someone goes through a cardiac arrest event. So students at the high school, um, you know, if, if they were to see a teenager or adult collapse, they would be able to do some type of CPR to keep the person alive before emergency responders arrive. The difference between hands-only CPR versus traditional method is that hands-only uh, doesn't require you to give the person breaths. Um, it really only requires you to push on a person's chest to keep their blood flow going within their body. Okay, so what's the exact procedure to do hands-on CPR? So there's really only two things that we, in which we will go over during the actual hands-only CPR session. There's only really two things that we uh, teach students to remember. So then the first thing is to call 911. The first thing, you know, we, we need to get the person to the hospital. So the most important thing is to call 911 to get us there. And number two is to push fast and push hard. And um, what you wanna do is you wanna place your hand one ab above the other, locate the middle of the chest and basically push fast and push hard. Uh, the one thing that we, we try to um, mention to students is to, if, if, you're, um, if, you're, if you're familiar with the songs Crazy in Love by Beyonce or Staying Alive by <laughs> the Bee Gees, 
um, th that's the about the pace you want to be pushing on the person's chest. Oh. It's about 100 to 120 beats per minute. Okay, that's really interesting. So, um, so deviating from the traditional, you know, uh, chest compressions and mouth to mouth, does taking the mouth to mouth away reduce the effectiveness of the CPR in any way? So, according to American Heart Association, when you when you actually witness a person collapse, a teenager or adult. Uh, the first few minutes when they're down, when you're doing chest compressions only, there's enough oxygenated, uh, oxygenated blood in their stream that when you do push on their chest, that's enough to keep their vital organs, their brain alive and uh, to prevent any type of damage. Um, obviously, beyond that, it, you know, the efficiency does go down. But for the first few minutes, what you're trying to do is keeping the person alive, keeping their organs oxygenated before we get there. Got it. What was the main reason for taking away the mouth-to-mouth? -mouth? Was it because people were uncomfortable about doing it? or I, I, think, uh, I think really two things really deter a person from doing CPR to begin with. Number one is not knowing how to do anything uh, as far as CPR, anything CPR related. And the second thing is that people are, un are uncomfortable thinking that if I have to give someone breaths, I have to put my mouth on somebody else's mm -hmm. mouth. Um, it really discourages someone from doing it. And as uh, American Hearts, as, as they've done studies, they've shown that, hey, the first few minutes a person's down, all you really need is compressions. And so that's why they've started this campaign to teach people that, you know, you don't have to breath, but the most important thing to do is do chest compressions. Right. So you talked about people being really uh, nervous and thinking that they don't know how to save someone's life. So, um, of course, saving a life is probably a really terrifying thing, because if I had to save a life, I'd be absolutely panicking that I would be doing something wrong and putting someone's life in danger. So what would you say to any high schoolers uh, who might not have the confidence to use the hands-on CPR method um, that you teach um, in times of emergency? Yeah, I think you, you would be really surprised. I think if people had the knowledge and the training possible, I think, um, and you know, if you go on YouTube, you see tons and tons of examples of people really rising to the occasion and helping, you know, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a loved one. Um, I think the key is having the training, having the knowledge, so when the time comes and you see someone that you know collapse, uh, you're able to basically um, spring into action. I think a lot of it, what, what freezes people is the feeling of, I don't know what to do. But if you have, have at least some training and know, uh, you know, to do chest compressions, I, I, think, I think high schoolers will have no problems doing it. Right, awesome, okay. So those chest compressions, do, uh, does the method vary for toddlers and elders? So um, as far as hands-only CPR, what we teach is that we're really supposed to only do it to teenagers and adults. Mm -hmm. uh, the hand placements for teenagers and adults are the same. Um, when you start talking about children and, and infants, uh, the hand placement, the method is a little different. Um, the one thing I will add is I would encourage everyone, you know, hands-only CPR is a good first step, but I would encourage everyone to go to your local um, uh, American Hearts, uh, American Red Cross, or find a local uh, American Hearts Association center and learn CPR, really learn the full skill. Um, you know, they've shown that uh, kids as early as nine, you know, have, have been trained and learned and become uh, CPR, CPR certified. CPR certified, yes. Right. Okay. And my last question for you is that have there been any incidents you know of in which high school students were able to save lives using the hands-only CPR method? I'm sure there's a ton of stories beyond Arcadia. Um, the hands-only CPR, you know, this is the only the third year. I'm sure as we continue this partnership with the high school that we will be hearing stories 
uh, moving forward. Uh, there hasn't been any specific stories, but I will say I did attend an award ceremony recently um, in the South Bay area, and there was a story of a kid who had taken and learned um, uh, basically what used to be called the Heimlich maneuver, and mm. he was able to save his friend uh, from choking. So I think with hands-only CPR, if if a, uh, if a student's trained, you know whether it's a loved one, whether it's a friend, when they see someone collapse, they'll, like I mentioned before, they'll be able to rise to the occasion, and we'll hear plenty of stories. Okay. So thank you. So Arcadia High School freshmen, uh, look forward during uh, June 3rd, 4th, and 5th to learning a life-saving technique. And thank you so much for your time, Chief Chen. That will conclude this episode. This has been Joyce with Arcadia High School's DCI, and the podcast team hopes you enjoyed our 29th episode. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe for more weekly content. Please visit the list of all our episodes on our new AUSC DCI page. The link is auscdci.weebly.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. This is Keeping It Arcadia, signing off.